Welcome to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. My guest on today's podcast is my friend, Claire Marshall. Welcome to the podcast, Claire. Hi, Richard. Hi, thanks for having me. And Claire is calling in from England. Um, In fact, she's calling in from Warrington, England, which is a city I served in my mission way before Claire was even born. And Warrington, for any of you that are curious, is about halfway between Manchester and Liverpool in northwest England. Is that about right, Claire? That's exactly right. I couldn't have said it any better myself, Richard. So your, your memory serves you well. So Claire has this beautiful British accent, and I'm going to be nostalgic the whole podcast, thinking I'm actually in England eating fish and chips in a Warrington fish and chip place after a long day of tracting. But I will keep in the present. But just as way of introduction, um, Claire is active LDS. She is in her mid-20s. She served a, grew up LDS and served a mission in Frankfurt, Germany, from 2012 to 2013. She currently serves as the first counselor in the Ward Relief Society presidency in the Warrington Ward. And I wonder if I've been in that building. And um, Claire... Uh, has stepped in this space, the same space many of my listeners are on, and I'm in as being active LDS and talking about LGBTQ and works right now for a a charity, an LGBT charity. Just as a way of starting, tell us a little bit about that charity, Claire. Yeah, so um, the the charity is LGBT Foundation. Um, It's based within central Manchester, and they support lesbian, gay, bisexual and trans people um, across the, the whole of Greater Manchester. We have a couple of projects in London and we have a helpline in one in 20 of our helpline calls at International. So um, it, it's quite a substantial charity. We have um, a men's programme, a women's programme, a trans programme. We have sexual health teams, um, substance use support programmes. Um, the program that I'm on is called Pride and Practice, and, and my job is to go out and, and provide training to GPs, so that's general practitioners, doctors, nurses, um, dentists, optometrists, and pharmacists on the specific health needs of LGBT people and, and best practices within the UK um, to support LGBT people so that their health equalities improve um, and that they receive better standards of care. Um, because we know that statistically LGBT people face um, high prevalence rates of of certain conditions compared to the general population. So it's a very unique charity and very grateful to be involved in that work and involved in particularly a project that is um, backed by the government, funded by the government, and has a lot of progress and a lot of development happening at the moment. So um, really feel like we're on the forefront of seeing the the reality of people's lives within the UK who identify as LGBT and trying to make a positive impact uh, and change to the services that they access within healthcare as well. So that's really yeah. cool. Walk our listeners through your education background and kind of how you've um, connected with this foundation. Yeah. So um, originally, I studied a bachelor's um, in surface design. And then I went on my mission. And when I finished my mission, I came home and I studied a master's in art psychotherapy, um, which is is using um, art 
as well as talking therapies to within a, a therapeutic environment to help people through a therapeutic process. And there's lots of case studies and advantages to that. Um, and and the, the way that I ended up working with the LGBT community was that in your um, master's program, there's two years. One year you focus on a placement with children and one year you focus on a placement with adults. And in my second year, um, I was assigned a placement in an LGBT health centre in Edinburgh. And you weren't allowed to refuse the placement, <laughs> so you had to accept it wherever it was and regardless of location. Um, and, and you had to, because it was your final year placement, not only were you having to just work there um, or carry out your placement hours and your, your clinical practice hours, your dissertation had to be focused on that topic area and one of your clients. So I went from what I thought, now I look back and see actually I probably had a bit more experience than I realized, but I went from zero to kind of, you know, 110% thrown into the, the deep end of suddenly working with um, clients who identified as LGBT, um, providing different events, supportive and therapeutic activities, and studying a variety of literature that I never would have thought that I would be um, studying as part of my um, dissertation and studies. And so that experience was um, fundamental in helping me to gain um, the, the knowledge and the experience and, and um, skills required for my current, my current role. Um, and so it, it led into, into that. Um, when you graduated, so I, did you know you wanted to work um, from a career standpoint with LGBT people? By the time I finished my, my master's, um, it was definitely an area that I felt that I strongly wanted to work with. And I had this sense of, I would like to, but I don't know how. You know, everyone kind of finishes their, their degree or their period of study, whatever it is, and there's that period of, oh, okay, now I'm in the real world. What do I want to do? And and you change your 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 perspectives and your... Um, experiences change you. So who I was at the start of that two years master's compared to at the end was was different. And um, I left definitely feeling like it was an area that I felt very connected to, very inspired to go into, um, initially not knowing how. And so there was a period for about a year or so where I, I kind of, you know, was unsure how to get into this line of work. Um, based on the opportunities that were available at the time and where I was living. Um, but it was something that constantly felt important and and kind of within my thoughts and within the things that I pondered about. Um, and that led me to various discussions with friends and, and initiatives that I'm part of. And so, um, yeah, definitely by the end it did. But I would have never have foreseen, um, you know, at the start of my master's that where I'd be working today is where I'm working. It, it, it seemed two completely different worlds apart. Um, so it was definitely a, a change that happened um, and a learning experience. Um, so that's great. Yeah. And um, I think what we'll do now is we'll, we'll kind of end the podcast again, coming back to what you're doing now. Um, mm -hmm. And I think it's good for our listeners to kind of know where you are now, but, um, for the mm -hmm. 
now I think we want to go back to kind of just, I'll ask you some questions about growing up. And I can't remember if I mentioned this to our listeners, but Claire offered a wonderful prayer as we, before we recorded. And we just, both of us pray that there's a good spirit here. Both of us are active LDS. And most of us have stepped in the space of using the principles of our church to talk about how we minister and help and lift burdens of LGBTQ people. And and both Claire and I probably have at times um, found that that took some effort on our parts to kind of understand this space. But I sense a lot of our listeners, maybe they understand more than me, but it's really the space that's free to occupy. Um, we can do both. We can be supportive of the church and LGBTQ people. Sometimes it creates a little tension. Sometimes we get criticized or people question our motives and we'll talk and see if you felt any of that. But it's really cool just to connect with you, Claire. Claire and I don't know each other. Someone connected us. And so we're just really visiting for the first time on this podcast as I'm having flashbacks of my mission in Warrington. And I won't bore my listeners with my mission in Warrington. I'll save that for a separate podcast. <laughs> um, but talk about, did you grow up LDS at a um, just talk about your home life growing up. Yeah, so I, I, I grew up in um, a family that were, were active within the church. My dad was a convert, and my mum had, had basically grown up in the church. Her mother joined the church when she was young. Her dad never joined, but she was essentially raised in the church and baptised around about the, the age of 11. Um, and so they they were both you know, they met and they got married and, and I followed a couple of years later. And so the church was always something that um, was a strong part of our life. And when I think of my parents, I think of more, most strongly their example within a church context. Um, both of my parents always held callings, were at, you know, with a typical at every single church event, left last, tidying up the chairs, doing their visiting and home teaching every single month, um, very, very active within the church. And I was grateful that they provided lots of opportunities to study the scriptures, to learn the gospel. They were very keen to teach us the principles of the gospel and and allow us the, the space to come to our own conclusions. They acknowledged this is, you know, what they felt was true and 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 therefore they taught us what they knew and um, but we ultimately had to decide for ourselves and so i was grateful for that because it meant as a as a young person as a youth um i didn't feel pressured to go to church i wanted to go to church because it was a positive environment um and i was grateful for that um but there, I do look back, and 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 with that said, um, I think now looking back, there are, are many questions that I had that weren't answered within the home. Um, and we'll, maybe this will answer some of your other questions. But I grew up in a ward that was a relatively small to average size, maybe seventy or eighty people. Um, but there weren't too many of us within youth, and within my age group or class group within um, youth and primary, there was about three to five of us, depending at what point within my childhood, um, were active and in the ward. And there was um, from, we moved into to the ward um, when I was seven, about to turn eight. And one of the other primary children, a year younger than me, um, 
from as long as I can ever remember moving into the ward wanted to transition from female to male. And so growing up, my church life was a mix of um, the, the teaching of my parents and then seeing as we got older, some of those theories being questioned or challenged within the ward because of how ward responded to this particular individual. And I look back now and I see actually that wasn't addressed um, by my parents or by the ward as well as it could have been done. Um, I also know that there probably was very, very limited resources to those church leaders. So they probably didn't know how to navigate um, that situation. Um, and so as I got older and now I reflect back, I'm like, actually, there's quite a few things that we didn't talk about um, that I wish we had discussed or had those more open conversations. And so I hope to be able to facilitate those kind of conversations with friends and with family myself. Um, and obviously, the environment that I work in is a catalyst for that as well. So um, I don't know if that answers your yeah, questions or confuses good. you and gives you more, more no. questions. To be so it sounds like your first real exposure to an LGBT person was a transgender person in your own congregation there in England. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Maybe, my, maybe you my, had um, friends in school and stuff like that. Yeah, so my, my uncle um, was actually gay. He left the church um, and he died when I was six. So I guess in the background, there was a context of I knew that he was gay. Um, therefore, there must be other relationship lifestyles than just the heteronormative that I was taught at church or maybe saw immediately within my family. But again, that wasn't a, an area that was um, hugely discussed. Um, certainly not by my grandparents because of the stigma um, and obviously not navigating that as a young person with my mother. So um, I think that was in the background. There was awareness that um, there are different lifestyles that people lead, um, but certainly, yeah, more of a uh, an immediate exposure or continual exposure was um, with, with this other uh, young person within my ward who identified as trans. How did the yeah. young, was this young person approximately your age, and how did this young person do over time? So they, um, so they were about a year younger, so um, almost in the same classes the whole way through. Um, they eventually went on to transition um, socially and, and medically and surgically um, to the gender that they felt most reflected them, so transition from female to male. Um, and they are now uh, married um, and I believe relatively happily married. As we got older, we kind of drifted apart just by nature of you know, going to different colleges and, and things like that. Um, but but certainly their family is still within um, my parents' ward and, and my brother was best man at their, their wedding. So, oh. um, yeah, they have developed into um, the person that they felt they, um, they were and most reflected them and um, living the, the lifestyle and the relationships that are significant to them. 
Will you give us yeah. some trans education? Um, neither of us are trans, um, so we should have trans, and I do have podcasts of trans people giving us trans mm -hmm. education, which is the best, but you're using they um, mm -hmm. and your talk. So just kind of, if I were a brand new person kind of wanting to learn vocabulary and just kind of trans 101, which is maybe an American term to describe the basics, uh, give us some of the things that you would share with our listeners. Yeah. So, so trans is a really big umbrella term. So trans um, essentially identifies anyone um, who identifies with a gender different to the one they were assigned at birth. Um, and then under, if you imagine that trans is a big umbrella and then underneath that are lots of um, further identify, so trans, uh, trans man, trans woman, um, non-binary is also almost its own umbrella um, underneath trans. So if someone identifies as non-binary, um, maybe they identify as both male and female, or they might identify as neither male nor female. Um, and and so we're starting, if we're if we're starting to look at um, non non-binary and and trans and um, gender non-conforming communities, it's starting to look at gender as you know maybe a scale or a spectrum, not definitively male or female. Um, and so my advice would be if um, you are with someone and you don't know how they identify their gender to use gender neutral pronouns. So they and them. Um, and then if they would prefer you to use a gendered pronoun like she or her or he or him, um, they, they can tell you that. But by using gender neutral language at the start means that you're not making assumptions about an individual's gender and actually allowing them the autonomy to say, this is how I identify. This is um, the, the the label or the language that I feel most reflects me and my identity. Um, so that is kind of the, the bare basics, but it does get a bit more complicated than that. And I don't know if you've covered non-binary identities in your previous podcast. No, or not too much. Talk about non-binary. Mm -hmm. Do you, do you say you want to talk about yeah. non-binary or you've yeah. not? Yeah, do. Go ahead and give us some one-on-one -on, -one on that. Yeah, so so just as I was saying, um, it's starting to look at gender as a spectrum. So most things within our society presume that um, you're male or female, right? That it's one or the other as an option. And so non-binary people um, may identify in a variety of ways. It could be gender fluid, gender queer, agender, um, gender non-conforming, non-binary. There's as many terms for non-binary people as there are non-binary people because it's an individual experience, it's a personal experience. So it's starting to move away from this binary concept that an individual is exclusively male and exclusively female and actually saying look how I identify my gender is a mix of different things our identity is made up of lots of different things it's made up of our gender our religion our culture our socioeconomic status so our identity is really big and our gender identity our gender is one element of our identity and and maybe for some individuals um they don't feel that their identity is solely female only or solely male only and we're starting to look at um looking at stereotypes cultural norms 
um, gender biases, things like that. So it, it can feel um, perhaps a bit overwhelming or challenging to someone that's never come across any of these words or concepts before or has never even thought about their own gender um, and, and thinking about, well, how do they define their gender? Because most people will be assigned a gender at birth and as they get older will just presume that that gender is the right gender for them and never really give it any thought as to whether or how they feel about their gender or how they um, might like to refer to themselves or their gender. So it, it might seem a bit overwhelming, but it, it's, I think that's because we're, it's, it's starting to look at gender from a different angle to what we've traditionally looked at it as within the Western world for several decades or hundreds of years. Um, there is quite a substantial amount of research around um, non-binary identities or trans identities or a third gender um, in non-Westernized um, societies um, and indigenous communities as well. So that's something that supports and is often used when people are discussing um, the, the history or legitimacy of um, non-binary communities or trans communities as well, um, which is actually really quite interesting if people are intrigued by that, go and do some research because I think it would give you some interesting reading. Um, That's very helpful. You know, for traditional Latter-day Saints that are trying to reconcile as they learn about this space with our doctrine of gender identity or the um, gender is eternal, um, and sometimes they feel conflict there. Do you, do you personally have a way to reconcile that, or do you have conversations with Latter-day Saints that are trying to fit all of everything you just taught us about with the doctrine mm -hmm. of our church? Um, I don't know if I have fully reconciled all of these elements myself and and to be honest I don't know if I can just simply because the more that I work in this environment the more I study um the more my awareness and knowledge expands and that then causes you to reevaluate all of the previous conclusions that that one makes um in terms of you know, as you were saying about gender being eternal, I presume that you're referencing the family proclamation yeah. there. Um, I remember having one conversation with my dad about it, and that was that was it. It was never spoken about um, after that conversation, and and he had said, well, um, basically the 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 person within my ward, um, they despite transitioning their gender, were, were very um, vocal about the fact that they believed in the church, they believed the principles of the church were true, they had a testimony of the church, um, and that they felt that gender was eternal, but that the gender that they were was just different to the physical body that they had on the earth. Um, and, and that, for me, as a young person, as, as someone in youth, um, was hard to to reconcile because you had someone that was you know testifying quite you know sincerely and emotionally to the truth that they felt 
were, were true to them and, and that they felt they knew. And yet it felt that the actions or it, it, it was perhaps perceived that the actions of that individual was almost violating the very principles that, that they were testifying of. And, and this was something that I look back and, I'm, and I think that wasn't really addressed within our ward. Um, and, and that is hard for youth to reconcile when I'm sat in a young women's lesson and, and we're being taught, you know, gender is eternal, family proclamation, your divine um, nature as a woman. And an individual in the class is sat there wearing a suit, asking to have male pronouns and a male name, but it's not being addressed. That, that does cause some, um, some questioning or some conflict. Um, and so I, I spoke to my dad one day and I said, I, I don't know how to reconcile this. And he was like, I don't know either. Um, maybe when people are assigned, you know, to come to earth, there are some people that are just so eager to receive a body. They're like, I'll accept the next body available. And, you know, and so they take it and maybe it doesn't align with their spirit. And he was like, but I don't know if that, really you know he was like that's the only working theory I can think of and I don't even know how much I believe in that and then the conversation ended and so we never reviewed it we never discussed it again um and so it yeah it did raise a lot of questions and and I have since met at least one other trans person that um was a member of the church now no longer a member of the church who again, identified that they agree with many principles of the church, but feel that their gender is eternal and their gender is just different to the one they were assigned at birth in this mortal life. Um, and so I'll be honest, it's not an area that I have answers on, but I've reconciled in the sense that we live in a world where we have really, really diverse experiences and I don't know what it's like to identify as trans or non-binary because I don't identify as trans or non-binary. Um, but if someone does, they're entitled um, to that and they're entitled to feel acknowledged and loved and, and affirmed in, in the way that they feel um, is most appropriate for them. And so in that sense, I reconcile it, but I, I don't have an answer I could give you, you on that question. I, d I don't even know if there is an answer that um, that's as I fine. would receive in this, in this life, at least, you know, so. That's as fine an answer as anybody's ever given me um, on this podcast regarding that question. And it just is, I, I just try to do what you do, Claire. If someone identifies as trans, I don't make them jump through hurdle to prove that to me. I just, it costs me nothing just to let them, for me to use the pronouns that they would like me to use, the names that they would like me to use. I don't wonder, just like you don't, if they've had the surgery or how far they've transitioned. If it To me, there's a doctrinal principle that works for me is love my neighbor and do unto others as I would have them do unto me. And so I just put my arms around trans people and I don't know their experience. It can be kind of scary and it pushes the envelope for me on what gender identity is, but I've learned to listen to people and validate how they feel because that to me is part of my doctrine as a disciple of Christ to not add to someone's burden, but to lift mm -hmm. their burden and help minister to them. And 
And then, you know, sometimes we just live in these paradoxes where I believe in the proclamation of the family that gender is eternal. And then I hear individual experiences. And sometimes I think, well, maybe there isn't a paradox there that gender is eternal. And sometimes I think maybe there is a paradox here depending on the person and their feelings about gender. So I love, I think a lot of our um, Latter-day Saints want to engage in the very thing you just talked about and talk about that in our congregations in our families and think of a framework to reconcile this as we become more aware of trans people. And it certainly humanizes it when we know a transgender person. We just, that's what changed for me is I had to meet trans people to learn about trans people. I couldn't just talk to cis people to tell me about trans people. And you understand that. And, yeah, exactly. and so that's when everything shifted for me. And I just felt like you did with this transgender person, your ward, a human there with a deeply personal experience about how they were feeling. And it cost me nothing to validate how they felt. So um, any more thoughts on that before we move on? Um, I don't, I don't think so. I mean, there's other random thoughts that I have, that I have but I don't think they would be a uh, co coherent, uh, probably at this time so yeah i think let's let's move on any just I, I don't know if you have a perspective of the difference between the church in the united states and the church in england regarding the number of lgbtq people that identified and maybe it's just a i sense there's more people and maybe this isn't in the church i sense there's more people in the in society in england identifying as lgbtq compared to the states is that true and maybe you don't know that that for certain so um some research suggests that with within the uk um as many as five to seven percent of the uk population identifies as um lesbian gay and bisexual and that about one percent of the population identifies as, as trans there's research to suggest that if we were including non-binary and um, people within those statistics they would be slightly different um but the the process in the UK in terms of regulating and research and, and kind of establishing statistical numbers of people that identify as LGBT um, isn't standardised. And that is um, one of the issues that we address um, within the work that I do at LGBT Foundation. And also, I again, I don't know how it is within the States, but within the UK, um, the legal parameters within the UK, but also within a European perspective, um, the definitions around identifying as trans are maybe different to what people think they are. Um, and so that can also affect population size as well. Um, but there isn't at present within the UK a standard metric for, for um, officially gauging numbers. Um, so that's talking from a UK perspective. Within an LDS context, I definitely have noticed a greater amount of people either in conversations or individually saying to me, oh, I identify as LGBT or, yeah, my brother identifies as LGBT or everyone seems to have a friend, a relative or someone um, within their close sphere um, that identifies as LGBT. Um, but 
where LG, where do LGBT people go? Are they supported? Um, particularly within the church, seems to be a different conversation and a different narrative entirely to um, just how many people identify as LGBT. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does make sense. Yeah. Um, so you had this experience growing up in your ward, um, and then you served a mission. And I'm just, it's kind of the story of how you connected with LGBT. And obviously, your graduate work was a big part of that. Any other experiences, either on your mission? I know you talked about RISE before we went live. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know if you want to talk to our listeners about that, but just kind of your journey as you just learn more about our LGBTQ friends. Yeah. So, it, I mean, growing, I think growing up in the world that I did and with the experience that I had certainly with, with the other youth that was there, um, that was fundamental because I saw them and, and the ward saw them transition um, not only from male to female, but child to adulthood through a variety of different means. So some were social, so starting to use male pronouns and, um, you know, a, a more masculine name or a different name. Um, right through to seeing them, you know, having surgeries and mastectomies, taking hormones, voice changes. So really seeing them transition and again, seeing how that impacted the ward. Um, so I gave an example of, you know, there not being clarity around the discussion, but right through to things like, you know, I remember being in meetings and people saying, well, when this individual transitions to male, should they have the priesthood? Should they be allowed to use male toilets? Should they, you know, be entitled to X, Y, and Z, which are um, privileges or roles that we normally ascribe to the men? Should they be allowed to go on young men's camps? Should they be allowed to attend young men's rather than young women's? And seeing how the ward responded to those questions how leaders responded to those questions and um, how the individual appeared to um, respond and, and, and take on that experience and, um, and how they then navigated that situation as well. Um, so that, I mean, that formed, you know, a good 13 years of my, of my life. Um, and particularly within those formative experiences. When I was on my mission, there wasn't, um, at least I'm not aware of coming across or um, serving with or um, teaching anyone that, that identified as LGBT, but they may have done. Um, but I certainly saw my experience on my mission or, or people that I was working with is just recognizing that there are a diverse range of experiences, a diverse range of um, lifestyles and um, and being able to maybe accept that um, that diversity um, and and understanding the need to love individuals regardless of whatever um, their their difference was from me. And that was sometimes hard to explain to perhaps companions that, um, we're not culturally um, from a, a similar background to me or maybe had grown up in Utah where they, you know, only knew the church and the church being a heavy part of their life and their culture and nothing else and perhaps weren't exposed to as much diversity as I had been. Um, 
but it didn't come up, um, I, if I'm honest, on my mission um, significantly. Um, and so I wouldn't have predicted at that point in my life that I would be working where I am now because it didn't seem to flow into that experience, if that, if that makes sense. Yeah, that does make um, sense. So it, it it really was when I when I came back and I moved to Edinburgh, and was I was in Edinburgh Ward, and as I moved into the ward, someone else moved into the ward, and they identified as trans, and again was hit with all of these questions. Not not myself questioning, but other members of the ward saying well, should this person be allowed to pass the sacraments? Should they be allowed to teach the youth as a Sunday school teacher? How do they navigate, you know, which classes they go in? And, and you know, being able to be in a unique position of this sense of, oh, I've been here before. <laughs> the, these questions aren't unfamiliar to me. And perhaps navigating some circumstances now are not unfamiliar to me. Uh, in fact, I felt confident with them. But having to then support members in the ward or YSA specifically um, that had questions around that and, and didn't know how to respond and didn't know how to navigate the questions that they were then facing in terms of, as we were saying before, you know, gender being eternal and the proclamation and someone in the middle saying, I believe in the church, but for, for all intents and purposes, maybe to others it appears that they their actions are incongruent with those beliefs and so um that was an interesting year to be navigating that and obviously being a YSA rep meant I was people's first port of call and and um having to navigate a lot of those situations sensitively um while trying to support the individual themselves identified as trans and those within my immediate sphere so um I feel like that linked my my experiences growing up and my experiences growing up then prepared me I guess for being in that situation um because I was the only one as far as I was aware within the ward that had any awareness of trans people and any experience of trans people within an LDS context how did your ward handle some of those things as far as a transgender person and what class what restrooms if they could teach any any specific examples of how your ward handled that, or was it just any thoughts on that? Um, so, the do you mean in the ward when I was growing up, or when I was oh, in Edinburgh? Edinburgh ward. In Edinburgh ward, so the um, it was it, it was tricky. So I think the the bishop. I, I really um, admired the bishop. The bishop at the time was a wonderful man, and um, he was very aware of the sensitivity of the situation um, and also aware of kind of his lack of knowledge on the subject and also how to best navigate that. And, and, and he was quite open. I went to him on a couple of occasions and said, look, I want to know what this policy says and this policy because people are asking and I want to have the right language. And, you know, sometimes he'd be like, there's no information on it. There's no policy on it. I've got no guidance on it. You know, he was very, 
he was very transparent. And I think that helped everyone in the sense that they were able to see there's no particular bias here from the bishop, that we're all working from a position of not as much knowledge and not as much support within an LDS context as people perhaps would like or as there might be in other situations within the church that arise. Um, so I think that helped. I mean, there are general things such as, um, you know, allowing individuals to use the disabled toilet rather than a gendered toilet if they would like. Um, the, the YSA within the ward decided to send an email to everyone stating what names they would like to use and pronouns and ask people to respect that. So that was a very clear way of enabling people to, to know what that individual wanted rather than guessing or making an assumption or misgendering the individual. Um, but it, it, it did cause issues when we're starting to, or some members of the ward I, I know were, um, were unhappy with the prospect of this individual who would be turning up to a church wearing a skirt and pearls and, you know, um, bras and things like that. And, and then in theory, you know, should they be allowed to pass the sacrament or not? Um, and that was, you know, something that I know the bishop dealt with confidentially with families that had those questions. So I guess if, if there are leaders listening to this, allow your members the space to come and disclose concerns that they may have, you probably don't not have the answers for them and you may not even feel confident in what answers to give them and that may even cause you to not want to have the conversation. But if they feel that they can be open and transparent and go to you, that will be fundamental in developing that trust and that support um, rather than um, someone not being able to turn to you. And the, the bishop was very open to learning. So, you know, the, the individual um, that identified as trans, they sent the bishop lots of different articles. So the bishop could, you know, be aware of different things that they were experiencing or feeling, terminology, and, and, and they, the bishop seemed to have um, a willingness to learn as well and, and recognise that their willingness to learn was not, uh, was not saying they didn't believe in the church or that they didn't have a testimony um, or even saying that they agreed with uh, some of the things that the individual might have said or done, but actually learning about the topic enabled them to be a better support, to be a better leader, to be a better bishop, to answer those questions and to listen to those questions um, with more sincerity and, and to really see what the experience was of the individual that identified as trans and, and how the environments that they were in within the church impacted them and their well-being, their, their um, sense of safety and who they were and and their validity in some senses. So um, I think they were instrumental in doing that. And, and I think having the experiences that I had, I was able to mirror a lot of those actions in how I navigated the situation with the young single adults. So it meant that if there were people that maybe didn't want to go to the bishop or um, didn't have time or didn't feel comfortable going to the bishop, they could you know, maybe disclose that information to me and I could say, well, actually, maybe you should speak to the bishop about it or um, just having that safe space to disclose 
information and say, actually, I have these questions. It's not that it's shaking my testimony or it's cause for concern, but I don't know how to vocalise these questions and I don't know where to go and I don't know how to best support this person within our um within our group, you know, so having that support across the ward, I think was important. This is really a very thoughtful answer, Claire. And um, I just, I love your answer. One of the, reminds me of Ben Shalati here in Salt Lake City. He's gay and active in the church and he's had a lot of bishops. He's come out to a lot of bishops, but one of his recent bishops, when he came out to him, the bishop said, what do I need to learn to serve you better? And it was just such a humble, thoughtful question. It's really what your your advice is to the bishop and what that bishop did in Edinburgh was say, I need to learn. Sometimes I think we think as bishops, we have to have all the answers. And I think there's a spiritual component of being a bishop where you get revelation from God and inspiration from God from your members. But just like we have to to get personal revelation. We have to study it out in our mind and learn all we can to be able to get the to open our hearts to the revelation that we should receive for a member. And part of that is learning. And so I love the principles of that. And it's complicated. And you know, sometimes I think, well, how do you handle these questions? Because I think some people, I I maybe do this, want to keep everything in this nice, tidy box. And so when something comes along as a as a transgender person that kind of stretches our box or causes us to be a little uncomfortable or stretch, we want to then put it back in the nice tidy box by saying, well, that's just the influence of Satan um, mm-hmm. and his latest, you know, and his latest ways to attack the family. Or, or people would say, well, there weren't trans people 100 years or 200 years ago, so this isn't really real. And this is just the decline of society or the increase role of Satan fighting against um, the family. And and those are maybe really thoughtful, legitimate thoughts that came up, come out of traditional LDS people. How do you handle some of those comments? Um, uh, I think for me personally, I first try to assess, is the, is the question, is the comment sincere or is it with... Uh, a bias is it is it gen is it agendered you know if someone is coming to me and they want to have a legitimate conversation about let's say um trans trans people and non-binary identities and the existence of those identities within the world within the western world and the non-western world they want to authentically have that conversation i'm happy to engage that conversation with them and you know we can discuss that from a variety of angles and um, I can signpost them to articles and things like that. But if they're coming with without that sincerity and actually to force their force their opinion or to attack my, me or another individual, and it's not really coming from a place of genuine, sincere learning, then to be honest, I don't have time for that. And and I'm quite clear about shutting that down very quickly um, because I think we live in a world where we're bombarded with information and all information is biased. You can't, ex- you can't escape your bias, but you can acknowledge it and you can try not to have such an, a biased opinion on things so, so that you can really see a wider range of perspectives. So I think that's 
one of the first things that I'm always quite clear on is, is this conversation, is this question coming from a place of sincerity or not? Because only if we're sincere do I think we can really have a meeting of hearts and minds and understandings and intent and a real learning exchange where I'm learning from the individual and they're learning from me and we're both going away from that. Um, maybe not with all the answers, but certainly, you know, a sense of connecting together and, and further resources for where we can go and learn. I also think it's important that we recognize that just because someone's not just because someone's having these questions, or if you are having those questions yourself um, and trying to reconcile these ideas, that that's, that's not necessarily a reflection of your worthiness or your testimony or that you're doing something wrong. So, um, for example, when I was writing my dissertation, I had to read lots of different articles and books on a range of topics that you know, I wouldn't probably not of my initial choosing, but I had to because they related to my dissertation and my caseload. And so sometimes members of the church in passing would ask, well, what did you do today? And I would say, oh, I'm reading this article about, you know, X, Y, Z. And they would say, oh, why are you reading, you know, oh, why are you reading that? Have you got an issue with your testimony? Like, are you, are you questioning things? You shouldn't read things like that. And I would explain it for my dissertation. And, and then they would say, oh, you're forced to read it for, for your academic course. Oh, so you wouldn't honestly look at these things yourself. You're forced to read them. Oh, okay, well, if you're forced to read them, we understand why you're reading them, but you must be uncomfortable. So even within that, the individual is assuming that if I'm engaging in that conversation or, or educating myself on a particular topic that is outside the mainstream of the church beliefs, that it must be a reflection of my worthiness or my testimony, and it wasn't. And then the presumption that, oh, I must be forced because I wouldn't choose to educate myself on that topic unless I was forced to or I identified as LGBT. And so I think that's something that... Um, is often sometimes used within um, conversations that we have within our wards or members of the church that we have to be um, mindful of. Not that they that those um, opinions come. I don't think anyone that shared those thoughts with me were coming from a place of of negative intent. But their solution was, well, you just ignore it and then it goes away. And actually. If you ignore something, it doesn't go away. It maybe gets buried a little bit deeper, but it will resurface at some point in another example in a few years' time. And then, you know, almost like those whack a moles you kind of push it down yeah. for a little bit and then it'll pop up somewhere else and you'll push it down, you know. And, um, and, and I can't think of the exact quote off the top of my head, but Freud talks about, you know, if there is an unresolved conflict it's destined to be manifest if we don't address it and i'm wildly paraphrasing because <laughs> i don't have the quote in front of me and um, but i but i feel that sometimes within the church not just with questions relating to lgbt communities but a variety of other questions that we may have questions of the soul within the church that sometimes there is this fear that by um out identifying it and vocalizing it and 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 looking into it that we put ourselves in a vulnerable position and we would be better off to stay uneducated on the topic 
And I don't think that's useful for anyone because then it means when these topics are becoming more mainstream, we're not equipped with the language and the ability and the confidence to have the conversations openly and transparently, and we're left doing a disservice to the individuals that are in the firing line that are experiencing pain. And also as a, as a community, it doesn't give the best impression um, of us being inclusive and engaging and proactive and aware and, and knowledgeable and all those kind of things. So um, I think both of those points are, in, are important. Um, can you just ask a question again, just to make sure I've not gone off on a tangent? No, and, um, I, you, answer, you, a you answered the question really well. It's just sort of, you know, okay. people think this is a decline of society or Satan. And I love the way you said you want to figure out the intent behind the question. And if someone's already has a decision made, that's different to engaging with somebody who really wants to learn. And I've certainly right. had to create those boundaries. And do you find that people, you know, are suspicious of you, that you don't pass the purity test as a Latter-day Saint because you're, you know, have a job, your career now is in this space? Or do you find that mm -hmm. that's just kind of an individual basis, that you get a lot of support and some that ask questions or just talk, because there's a lot of allies out there. This might be for other allies that are saying, I, I'm a faithful Latter-day Saint, and I want to, you know, use my baptism covenants to actually minister to a group of people that has a harder road, and that seems to be the gospel of Jesus Christ. And But yet, mm -hmm. um, sometimes people that do that are held in suspicion or don't pass a purity test within our, our church. And so how are you navigating that, and are you feeling of that? Because here you are in a Relief Society president, an award, and you also have a career with um, this foundation. So share with our listeners some of your thoughts about that. Yeah, yeah, I think um, it is definitely hard. There are there are parts um, where I, I feel that I need to remember um, what I believe and who I believe, and, and, and as long as I know that, it's kind of irrelevant. Um, I'll share an experience with you, and hopefully it will give a bit more context. But when I um, was first doing my placement in Edinburgh, I had to go for an uh, for a, it was kind of like an introductory interview and discussion. And I went in the day, and in the evening I went to institute. And I was YSA rep at the time, and the the um, other YSA rep, the male YSA rep, um, was this guy. And I'll be honest, I fancied him like crazy. I had a mad crush on this guy and, uh, you know, really, really liked him, really admired him. You know, he was faithful and active in the church and um, had a good testimony. And we were both YSA reps, so we were, you know, working together and seeing each other at church quite a lot. And so we were very close. And I was at Institute and he said to me, oh, what have you done today? And I explained, I went to this, this interview at this um, LGBT health centre and he recoiled, physically recoiled in shock. And he said, oh, I didn't think you were, I mean, are you, um, are, so are you kind of, I, what, I mean, and, and I could see he was struggling for these words and he was uncomfortable. And um you know and and he said oh what what do you i mean what are you what are you doing there um and and i remember in this moment as i'm watching his reaction to me just even saying that i had been in this environment i remember 
um, feeling sad. I remember feeling frustrated. I remember feeling angry. I remember wanting to be defensive and say, because I, you know, I, I fancied this guy. I didn't want him to think that I was um, gay and therefore wasn't a possible person he could date. And I, and I remember like, you know, wanting to defend that. Um, and, and I, but I said nothing. And, and I, and, and I remember I, almost as instantly as I wanted to defend it, I remember thinking, what does this matter? And so he kind of said, oh, what are you, you know, why are you, why are you there? And I, I, I'll be honest, I didn't really handle it very well. And I said, I'm there to help people. Again, I walked out of the room and I, and I went to the toilet and I was really um, kind of emotional. It took me a while to compose myself. And, and as I was there, I was thinking, what is, what is it about, just even vocalizing that I was in this environment that to others feels threatening, that to others feels that who I am as they have known me must now be different, must now have changed, must now be controversial, must now be whatever the end of that sentence is. And that sense of, I remember thinking, oh, I want to defend that and 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 almost say, well, I'm not this and I'm not that and, and reassure and at the same time thinking, actually, none of their questions are relevant because I know how I identify and I know that I'm a worthy temple holder and I know that Jesus Christ is my savior and I believe that and I know that I am actively keeping my temple covenant. So actually, if they're going to make an assumption around anything to do with me and my identity and my worthiness, that's down to them, that's not down to me because I know that I'm keeping my covenants and I know I can answer those temple questions, you know, honestly and clearly, and that's reflected in my service. And so there are definitely times since then where I've had similar experiences where people have made assumptions and I have had to rely on, you know, just I know who I am and I know what I believe and I know what's important to me. And if they want to make assumptions, it's up to them. And other times I've, um, you know, had to clarify um, what the, they may have thought about me. And sometimes I've had to almost justify um, my standing. So when I, uh, there have been two times I have required a, a renewal of my temple recommend, for example. And on both occasions, they have been with a member of the state presidency, the second interview that you have. And, and in both occasions, they've been with members of the state presidency that I have never met before. And so coming in cold and them asking me, you know, is there anything that you, um, you know, anything in your life that's not in accordance with the church or against the standards of the church and them perhaps knowing or having asked what I do for work, almost sometimes having to justify to them, actually, this is what my work involves. This is what my testimony of the church is. And, and I don't see that the two are incongruent or incompatible. And, um, you know, and, and I've been fortunate that in both cases, those Temple Recommend um, interview ended in a way where there was that meeting of minds and intent and understanding, but they provoke anxiety because I know that depending on the person's individual perspective or experience or biases, they will perceive me positively or negatively as an ally or as someone that could be, um, you know, living contrary to the church or supporting things that are contrary to the church's primary belief and teaching. So it isn't it, it can be quite a hard situation to navigate.
Um, and it, it's been, yeah, I, I've had to kind of toughen up about some assumptions that people may make and just, um, but, in, but in other cases, people knowing the environment that I work in um, means that a lot of people actually come and disclose information to me or, or see actually if this person is, is working in an area that is unique and is different, maybe they're, they're open to discussing um, a variety of different situations and people will often come and disclose things to me, not even about their, their sexual orientation or their gender identity, but, but other questions that they have about the church that they don't feel safe disclosing to other members or friends and family. And so we're able to have that, that conversation, that friendship because of um, the, the environment that I work in is an immediate sign to them that um, maybe I don't fit the mainstream, but you can still be active and working and living within um, an environment that's different and not the norm. Um, Those yeah. are great examples. And, you know, on behalf of our listeners, I love the way you're navigating this space. I, I do believe strongly in my heart, Claire, that what you're doing is consistent with the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he was with those that had a harder road in mortality. And and that's the way I see my baptism covenants is going horizontal, a big part of it. And that's my relationship with other people and lifting other people's burdens. So I think um, you're, and it is kind of a difficult space. Some would look at that as not, you know, and so I think you're managing that really well. But I one of the things that strikes me, I keep re reminding myself, you're only in your 20s, late 20s. You have a obvious academic and intelligence and a framework that's very, very helpful, but and a deep foundation in the church. And all this comes together to form, you know, your unique ministry, um, both within your presidency and your ward in Warrington and with your work at the LGBT Foundation. And and you're just serving a lot of people in both spaces. And, and yeah, I hope that you feel the balm of Gilead around you from our faith community for what you're doing. And as we mature as a faith that we don't, um, aren't suspicious of somebody like you. And um, I've shared this story with some of our listeners, but if others are listening for the first time and it's it's about my own mission president. Um, when we came to England, right before he got there, he felt the culture was too much us versus the Church of England. And the prior mission president really needed a bogeyman or an enemy. And he thought that if we made the Church of England the bad guy, that it would help our take our message to the people of Northwest England. And our mission president, Ellis Ivory, thought, no, that keeps us from taking the good news of our gospel and he wanted to break the culture, so he had an all-mission conference in the Lake District in Hawkshead, which is near Kendall, and I don't know if you know where Hawkshead is, and we all went to an, a Church of England there, and the vicar and the mission president spoke to us sitting in that Church of England, and we just talked about the common ground we had in the gospel of Jesus Christ, and what happened is it just fundamentally changed the culture of our mission. We no longer had to talk negatively about the Church of England, we could have a fact-based discussion about the Church of England without demonizing them, and our baptisms just soared. We actually became the top English-speaking baptizing mission in the whole church, with over 300 a month being baptized in that area that you live in. And it just taught me that I don't need to 
I don't need to demonize other people to sort of build my religion up. I don't need to demonize LGBTQ people to somehow validate my straight marriage. And and even people that leave, I just don't see them as as the villain. I see ISIS as the villain and people that sell children as sex trafficking as the villain. But And I think we're just maturing as a church and a culture to see people as fellow human beings and not be and have a more thoughtful heart that allows us to see differences. And just a closing note on that, Hawkshead Church of England is one of our missionaries came back 20 years later, about three years ago, and saw they were doing a fundraiser for the Tower Bell. And he contacted the person doing the fundraiser. And all of our missionaries that went to that were extended the courtesy in 1979. We raised about 20,000 pounds and presented it to that church um, near Kendall. And the new mission president and the new vicar were there in the Czech presentation. I just love that where we came together in our common humanity to support each other. And we didn't sell out our religion to do that. We just used our very religion to find common ground with our fellow humans. So that was just helpful for me. Um, but I realize I have a lot more privilege than you do. You're 29 and younger and female. And so you may be held up to more suspicion than I am at 58 and male and married and have six kids. And so I felt some of the feelings you may have felt, but I just admire the strength and courage you have and your convictions, both in our church and your work. And to me, it's not a conflict, and I think more and more people are coming to the same conclusions you are. I know when I just said some nice things in social media as a YSA bishop that it just it, it stunned me how many people then, just like for you, said, okay, I'm not LGBTQ, but I can talk to this guy. Um, he's safe to talk to about my faith or a difficult thing that happened, and it was fascinating to me if we want to create a culture of safety— in our personal lives or in our local congregations, being kind to marginalized people, that should be easy to do, but it often sends a message that we're safe, which is, I think, a great pastoral principle. So anyway, and the only other mission story I'll tell, Claire, because I'm reminiscing now, is my very first companion mm-hmm. when I, I was in Ashton over in Manchester Stake. He was British, and his name's David Rutley. And he said in the early part of our companionship, he said, Someday I'm going to be a member of parliament. And I kind of rolled my eyes. And then after spending two months with David Rutley, I said to myself, he's going to be a member of parliament. And sure enough, David Rutley is a current member of parliament, um, representing Macclesfield, and is continues to be a great friend, a great member of the church, and doing great good. And it was just one of your fellow, that's the only famous politician I know, Claire, is, your, is one of your members of parliament. But let's circle back, um, because we're kind of coming to the end of this podcast. Um, Talk about the work you do at the LGBT Foundation, if I'm naming it correctly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So the the project that I'm on is a project called Pride in Practice. And we deliver training to healthcare professionals on the specific needs of LGBT people. So we look at um, possible barriers that LGBT people may have in accessing healthcare. Um, So that could be anything from previous negative experiences. It could be um, looking at if they've got, um, you know, internalized homophobia because 
within England, um, homosexual activity was criminalised until 1967, and even in 1967 it was only partially decriminalised. So you still have lots of people that are still alive that um, grew up being told there's something wrong with them and because of who they're attracted to, um, that, that it was a criminal act, so they're bad people, um, there's something suspicious about them, etc. And, and, you know, ultimately that can affect how open there are, um, how open people are in certain environments because of how safe they feel if they've internalised that homophobia. So we look at some barriers like that. We look at some logistical um, barriers as well that people may have in accessing healthcare. Um, and so one example is, is looking at um, cervical screening within um, this country. Women, cisgender women are advised to go for cervical screening every three years. But if you identify as a trans man, you will still have, um, you may still have a cervix. But our system, um, the actual IT structural system of our healthcare service, uh, means that you would be missed from any recalls and any um, letters and information inviting you for a cervical smear. So potentially you might never go and you might um, you might have cervical cancer and by the time it's diagnosed it's too late. Um, so we address some of those systematic issues that are there um, and things that individual practices can put in place. We look at health qualities and, and prevalence rates. So LGBT communities have higher prevalence rates of um, smoking, substance use, whether that's drugs or alcohol or smoking, um, certain phenomena that relate to that. Um, sexual health is often um, a, a risky area for, for LGBT communities. Obviously, HIV prevalence rates are higher amongst um, certain LGBT communities. Um, so we discuss that and we discuss things that people can put in place um, to, to support individuals that are accessing their services. Um, so it's, it can feel a little bit overwhelming at times as you start to realise that the uh, political and um, certainly within the UK, the social healthcare system that we have that I've grown up um, feeling very proud of actually has huge loopholes that is not uh, meeting the needs of many minority communities, not just LGBT communities, um, but looking to support individual services um, in understanding the needs of others. And I think that's something that um, is it we need to recognise that if someone's had a negative experience relating to any part of their identity, they're less likely to feel comfortable disclosing information about themselves in other environments. So often I'll go to a doctor's surgery and they'll say, well, we treat everyone the same. And if someone's got something relevant to their healthcare needs that is related is related to their sexual orientation or their gender identity, they'll let us know. But actually, if you face years of discrimination or fear or stigma because of your sexual orientation or your gender identity or your religion or your belief or whatever factor it may be, you're less likely to disclose information. And so I think at present, the onus is on the individual to identify and explain 
why their sexual orientation is important and how it impacts their life, why their gender identity is important and how it impacts their life. And actually what we need to be developing is a connecting of hearts and minds where the the leaders within healthcare, the individuals within healthcare are saying, I have some knowledge, I have some awareness, I think this is how it might impact you, but let's have a real authentic conversation about you and your situation, who's important to you, is it is your significant other, you know, the same gender or a different gender? Am I making assumptions about that gender that means you don't feel comfortable disclosing that information and actually having that real conversation of trying to support and help one another and I think that's a principle that we can take into whatever environment we are working in actually um, is that by having these conversations you're only going to improve and, and, and learn and have a greater understanding of the reality of some people's lives the reality that is probably different from your life and maybe you can't until having that conversation fully fathom um, but the conversation needs to be had to get you out of your own bubble and to see actually life is far more multifaceted um, than than we acknowledge and um, and and it's important to to help people to feel validated and authentic um, as themselves. So um, I mean that's kind of the maybe the fluffier side of my work um, compared to the day-to-day tasks of, uh, you know, trying to liaise with policymakers and, um, you know, healthcare committees and governing committees and and targets and things like that. But um, really at the core of it, it, it's helping people to to try and achieve their fullest potential and helping those um, leaders and, and healthcare professionals that can support them to feel confident in meeting their needs. Um, because at the minute, so many people are, are not having their needs met within the system. So, um, do your yeah. um, co-workers know you're a Latter-day Saint? And if they do, do they? Does that surprise them that you're in this space and an active Christian? And um, they do know that I'm uh, a member of the church. Yes, and they they do know that I'm active. Um, some of my colleagues are more perhaps comfortable with that um, so they'll ask me about you know which conventions I've been to on the weekends and you know um, have I found anyone uh, am I still single and things like that and so in that sense the, the conversation isn't much different from conversations other members of the church might be having with me um, even though the environment's different um, but they, they do know that I'm a member of the church and I think that's important for people to know because we often um i think we presume that because some identities or at least what's portrayed in the media um is portrayed that you can't be um you can't be a member of faith a person of faith and lgbt that the two are incompatible that you must be one or the other right and so actually by saying well I am an active member of my religion, but I also recognize this is, um, you know, an area that I feel very strongly connected to and have experience with and want to work in and support um, LGBT people, that actually that is a great strength because I can see different 
different angles and different sides and and I'm not shy about um acknowledging that I that I have a faith and that I'm active within that faith um and that helps to break down those stereotypes that it's you must choose one or the other and actually the reality is that we are often living with multiple intersecting factors to our to our identity and to our existence um so this shouldn't be any different um but we're often told that it should be in the media that it's it's not possible for people to have a faith and um and be lgbt and that i think that's you know that's rubbish my manager at work we get on really well they they identify as lgbt and they're a buddhist and we often have conversations about religion um and 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 how our faiths intersect and the personal work that i'm doing um with with rise and and, and other personal things so um no it's definitely important that they that they know and it, it's valued it's definitely it feels valued and, and acknowledged um within my work environment I'm, I'm really grateful for that because I know that there may be others, other people that don't have um, working environments where they can be open and transparent and, and feel safe. So, I love definitely. that answer. And I'd love that, you know, I'm thinking some of the Brene Brown, that we can be everywhere and it doesn't, and you're in these multiple spaces and, and you may, and I love the way you're just owning that and helping people in both spaces to realize you can do both. And I think it's a, sign of spiritual maturity, emotional maturity, and seeing our society as, a, as as all human beings. And I think it's what Christ did. I look at his ministry and I look at what you're doing. And to me, it's consistent and it is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I think you're helping so many people. Are, are there just any last thoughts you'd like to share before we close, Claire? Um, I, d I don't I don't think so, which uh, I, I feel is a faux pas. I feel like I should always have a, <laughs> a, last, a last word or a, you know, a final punchy comment. Um, but I think, I mean, there's so much more that we could delve into in these topics. You know, if, if, if we had a couple of days to surround the fire and unpick them um, and unpack them a little bit, it would be great. But I think just something that I would want people to remember is if you are um, if you are struggling with your sexual orientation or you're struggling with your gender identity, um, it's okay. Um, and I don't know your situation, so I don't know whether it's safe to disclose that information or to be open. So I don't want to, you know, placate you with a, a sentence that is, um, you know, so generalized that it has no meaning, but um, you are not the only one. And I, and, and I think for anyone that's having those questions, whether they identify as LGBT or not, um, and questioning things within the gospel, it's okay to question. When you're questioning, it's not a reflection necessarily of your, of your faith or your testimony or your worthiness. Um, and I think that's something that for many years, you know, I was quite bullshit and quite confident growing up, but I still recognized I was nervous if I sat in a young women's meeting and, you know, if someone brought up 
the law of chastity, was there an assumption that you were bringing it up because you had an issue with it? Or if you were bringing up sexual orientation, were you bringing it up because you had an issue with it? And I think sometimes we that, that narrative um, still lingers within the, the conversations that we have at church and within the structures of the church culture. And, um, and we need to do everything we can to get away from that because while we are making people feel bad for questioning, um, we're we're not loving them, and I think sometimes we have this thought that we have the monopoly on truth, um, and therefore if we're telling them the truth, then it's fine. And actually, my mission president would tell us truth without love destroys. Wow. It doesn't matter if your message is true. If you don't love the individual, you'll do more damage than you will good. And actually, we need to love each other, and that can feel really hard. And that can sometimes feel irreconcilable. But if we continue to perpetuate situations where people feel that they are wrong for questioning, for having thoughts, for even, you know, reading an article about LGBT communities and, and making the assumption that um, they'd only read it if they were forced to or if they had an issue with, then, then we're, we're contributing more to the problem than we'll ever be helping. Um, and unless you love the person, the truth will, you know, truth without love does destroy. So I think that's the only thing that, you know, if you, if anyone listens to this and they come away just feeling actually it's okay to question, it's okay to to have those thoughts uh, and that you're not bad for having them because if they're coming from a place of sincerity from really wanting to work out, um, you know, where you stand in relation to the gospel and the saviour, that's fine. Um, if they're coming from a sincere place, those questions are okay. And um, I don't want to open myself up to be, you know, um, to, to being too vulnerable. But, you know, if you, you know, want to share my contact details or people want to get in touch following this podcast, that, you know, that's fine. Um, are you okay sharing it, your email address with our listeners? Yeah, exactly. You can you can share that. Um, Why don't with, you just? Um, will you give? A, and, um, will you give your email? Will you go ahead and just read it for our listeners? Yeah, ca marshall at uk. You can email me if you want. And and I think it's just being able to know that there's someone else that's an ally or a bridge or an outlet where you can just say, "Hey, I'm having these questions," or and I'm not necessarily going to have the answers on them, but I think we need to create more spaces where people can feel safe to say, I have questions about X, Y, Z, whether it's, you know, sexual orientation or word of wisdom or pornography or whatever it is within the church. We need to create safe spaces um, because without them, we, we will struggle and um, we will continue to perpetuate um, negative cycles of, of of shame and of guilt um, that that potentially can be avoided. So I think that's uh, yeah all I can all I can share at the at the end. And hopefully it doesn't sound too um, corny. And is is uh, the intents of my thoughts are coming over. Hopefully the voice wave. Um, well, yeah. That's great, Claire. Um, thank you, Claire Marshall, um, active Latter-day Saint, supporter of LGBTQ people, disciple of Christ, 
British citizen with an awesome accent for joining us on another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love. And I just pray you'll continue to be sustained. You have a beautiful and unique life mission, and you are helping hundreds and hundreds of people. So thank you, Claire. And this is Richard Osler signing up on another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love.